Father, we're grateful to be together this morning. Father, thank you for flannel shirts and sweaters and long sleeves, which will only break out for about two or three weeks a year. But Lord, bless our time together. Uh, Father, it's good to be with you and with each other. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Jim Ellis, one of the pastors here. And uh, I get a chance to preach a couple times a year. And that's really all I want to do. And I'm not trying to be funny, but I'd much rather be in a classroom sitting on a table, swinging my legs and asking questions. But we have, I do get to volunteer to do this once in a while. So let me do a little housekeeping before we jump in the message. Uh, I want to explain my journey to, to today's message. I will mention some books this morning. I always do when I preach to get as many out there as possible. And I'll ask Summer if we can put them on, the, on our app, just the list. Um, but I don't know about you, but in a few minutes at 9.09, I think my iPhone's going to buzz and going to go, this is the amount of time you, screen time you spent this week, right? Yeah, okay. When that first happened, I'm like, I'm not going to look at it. Then I started looking at it. Then I'm like, I'm not looking at it <laughs> because sometimes you're like, no way. Yes. So that's going to happen, but my phone's laying back here. I guess my watch might go off, but I won't pay attention to it. Um, and in a conversation a couple weeks ago, talking to somebody, and I was reminded of a fact I read and then checked it again, that uh, 70 to 80% of Christian high school students who attend a secular university abandon their faith by, the, by their junior year. And I thought, oh, I had read that, checked it again through Barna, and uh, sure enough, that's the standing percentage. Then I was reading a statement from uh, a booklet Tim Keller wrote, which I would highly recommend. You can write this down, called How to Reach the West Again. Maybe 30 pages, really small. Um, and the way I found out about it, I was reading uh, his biography, Timothy Keller. And as I'm reading about how to reach the West again, this was a quote from Keller's biography. He says, perhaps the biggest challenge is still underappreciated by many church leaders. A few hours scattered between teaching, singing, and chatting among other believers cannot compete with the 24-7 digital deluge. And a warning, just that warning got me thinking. And then I read Heller's book, Making Sense of God, and that has sold the least of all his books, and I know why, <laughs> because it is not a typical Keller book. It's Keller, I would say, in the deep side of his thinking, but I think you all ought to get it, and take your time, and work your way through it, because Keller is challenging the church today to engage the culture in ways that we have never had to before, because we don't, the, the, the creation, people don't believe, oh, look at the creation speaks of God. No way. Something had to create this. No way. And so Keller's, the booklet, How to Reach the West Again, and that, and the book, um, Making Sense of God, I think are definitely worth, worth your time. And then in the meantime, I'm looking at Hebrews, and I don't know about you, I have a tendency when I read things that are uh, maybe convicting, I kind of go, oh, that's good, and just keep on moving. And so I've always read Hebrews, you know, Jesus, and, you know, fix your eyes on him and all this. And then as I'm reading over the last few weeks, what struck me were the warnings that 
the writer of Hebrews gives to that early church. And that really began to stir my thoughts. So, and I will say this, a few months ago when I preached, I mentioned, I didn't tell how old I was, but I said something about the 1900s, and everybody kind of went, <laughs> laugh. So if you want to laugh at this, feel, good, feel free. But in October of 1972, that's 52 years ago, for those who want to do math quick, I went to boot camp in Capeman, New Jersey, and the Lord used that experience to give, to give me direction in my life that would lead to a 31-year career in the Coast Guard and the Navy. And besides learning, the pointy end is the bow, the square end is the stern, port is left, starboard is right, uh, I learned how to properly stencil my clothes. Sounds really funny, and it wasn't, but the night I got to boot camp, they got us off the bus about 8 o'clock screaming at us. They took us to this building, and you just put your arms out, and the uniforms got taller and taller. And, of course, you got white T-shirts, white skivvies. I mean, everything's either white or blue. And then they took us to a room, and we built a stencil. And then for the next three hours, we stenciled. White for blue, black for your white stuff. It's 3 o'clock in the morning, and we'll st we're stenciling our underwear. It's like, you have got to be kidding me. But that was the beginning. I think the day or so later, they gave us <clears throat> a, a piece of paper that were the 11 military general orders that all enlisted members of all service services memorized during their first weeks in recruit training. And I got a few that I'm going to show you up here. So the military general orders are for enlisted men because of the roles and things they do. And the first one is this, to take charge of the post, this post, and all the government property in view. So when you're standing your post, what you can see, you're in charge of. Number two is to walk my post in a military manner, keeping always on the alert and observing everything that takes place within sight or hearing. So you're watching, you're looking, and... That's your job. Number five is this, to quit my post only when properly relieved. So until I'm relieved, I stay. If the guy's late, life is hard, you stay. Number seven is to talk to no one except in the line of duty. That was probably my most difficult one, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> but I couldn't talk, and they made me do that. <laughs> Number eight was to give alarm in case of fire or disorder. And number 11 was to be especially watchful at night during the time for challenging, to challenge all persons on or near my post and allow no one to pass without proper, proper authority. And we carried, doesn't matter, but an old M1 that weighed 20 pounds and uh, now they carry much more modern weapons. So what happens if these military general orders are not followed, in peacetime or war, some people can die on a ship. If they're not maintaining a fire watch, you've got anywhere from 400 to 6,000 on an aircraft carrier sleeping, and there are watches going on all, all day long and all night long. And I have to say, when I was in Ali Asalim, Kuwait in 2003, waiting for Operation Iraqi Freedom to kick off, I'm glad that we had Marines around our perimeter who knew these general orders very well. So I could go to sleep at night, and if I heard firing, I knew where to go, and if not, I would be able to sleep well. So I'm not gonna say, what are the general orders? 
at Redemption Peoria, but let me share something with you. Um, our six cultural statements for Redemption Peoria, we had these printed up. They are in the back on the Connect desk, and we were going to put them in all your chairs, but we knew that if we did, you wouldn't look at me, and you'd be going, oh, these are pretty cool. So they are available for you to grab as you leave, and let me share with you what those are. They are, all of life is all for Jesus. We have that on t-shirts. This is who we are. We take God seriously, but not ourselves. We have nothing to prove and no one to impress. There are no little people and no little places. We are called to do the Lord's work, the Lord's way. And life is naturally supernatural. So I must say this as I was chewing on these in the last few days. Uh, the concept of orders make some of you bristle with regards to authority. Who has authority to tell me what to do? And I would say simply, Jesus. <laughs> if he says it, then it's our responsibility to learn it and do it. And I refer to the story of the individual who, according to Jesus, had the greatest faith in all of Israel he had ever seen, and that was in the centurion in Mark, no, I'm sorry, Matthew 8 and Luke 7. So, there is some spiritual, I'm sorry, there is some scriptural basis for that statement. So the one thing I don't want this sermon to be is a guilt-driven sermon. Uh, I hope it encourage you, encourages you to desire to grow spiritually. Some of us have come out of that tradition where it was hellfire brimstone, and if you didn't feel warm or sweating, then you didn't feel like it was a good, a good sermon. Uh, not at all my desire. I want... We want our church to be encouraged to fight the good fight of faith and to be aware of the enemy's desire to distract and destroy your faith. In John Mark Comer's book, here's one for you, Live No Lies, okay, write that one down. Um, I would highly recommend that. I'm on my second read of it uh, this year, came out last year. He says this, our generation has a low comfort level with military metaphors and faith. We prefer to think of following Jesus as a journey or lifestyle rather than a war. But our spiritual ancestors didn't share our reticence with war imagery. They were far more adroit at naming the reality of scriptural conflict than we are today. For centuries, teachers of the way of Jesus used a paradigm that's been lost in the modern era, uh, that of the three enemies of the soul the world, the flesh, and the devil. They saw the three enemies of the soul as alien invaders from hell and a kind of counter-trinity counter to God himself. And this will be in a slide here in a moment, but the devil's primary stratagem to drive the soul and society into ruin is this, planting deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires, our flesh, that which are normalized in a, in a sinful society, the world. So I commend to you John Mark Homer's book, Live No Lies. So this morning, I want to present three ideas, three themes from the book of Hebrews um, that are essential to our big idea. John shared this last week, that we want to follow Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do what Jesus does. So here are those three ideas. I want to encourage us to remember who Jesus is 
and the perspective he provides. Remember the Holy Spirit's warnings. And then remember community is essential. And I added, oh, it's there for life. So community is essential for life. So who is Jesus? <clears throat> the writer immediately orients the, the readers of the book by describing who Jesus is. It's a great seven-day Christology study. So if you're looking for something to do, starting tomorrow morning, just run this for a week and you'll have completed a good study. Uh, what's very interesting to note in this Christology, in the opening part of Hebrews, it's built all on Old Testament scripture and themes because none of these New Testament books have been out. So the writer has gone through the Old Testament and put this together. So the writer says this in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times. And by the way, I'm, re I'm using the NIV just because I was born into that in, when I was in seminary. Anyway, another story. Okay, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So who is Jesus? Here's a quick list out of that. In verse 2, he's the heir of all things. He is God's creative agent. Beginning in verse 3, he is, he is identified as the exact representation of his being. If you've seen the Son, then you have seen the Father. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the sustainer of the universe, the provider of purific purification for sins, and he's seated at the right hand of the Most High. Who is Jesus? There he is in the first three verses of the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> so that's, we need to remember who Jesus is. And secondly, we need to look at the, the perspective Jesus provides. And I wrote my notes, a confident expectations of God's promise. Um, this is the fix that I have spoken of. I guess my favorite verse, life verse is Hebrews 12. Fix your eyes on Jesus so you will not grow weary and lose heart. And this is the fix we need to find our way in this life so that we will not grow weary. and We won't lose heart in the marathon of faith we have been called to run. So look for a moment here. It'll be on the screen in a moment. Hebrews 10, 32 to 39. Uh, remember those early days after you had received the light when you endured a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And but my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we, knew what, we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. 
I don't know about you, but I've worn glasses, I think, since I was in the fourth grade. And I remember coming out of the optician's office the first time I had them on, and I'm like, whoa, that's what a stop sign looks like. <laughs> I can see this kind of blurry red thing. And I remember riding home on my bicycle going, I've never seen with such clarity everything in front of me. And our oldest daughter, Kristen, who is now 40, was about 6'3 or 6'4 in high school. And uh, we got her the sports glasses, you know, those big, ugly, you look like some kind of ant and stuff, and you got the wrapper thing behind your head. And I'm not sure, and I don't want to ask why we didn't get contacts. It could have been she couldn't wear them at the time. But so she was a basketball player, and at least once every other game, they'd get in a big scrum you know, underneath the basket, fighting for the ball. And of course, in the midst of that, these glasses would go boom, they'd go flying. And then without the glasses, she's blind. So the play moves back down the court, and Kristen's like this, <laughs> like, where are my glasses? And it was horrendous to watch. I'm like, oh my gosh, how do we glue them on her forehead? I don't know, but, but it was horrendous. And losing those glasses for her really was a perspective changer in the midst of that game. So a question I have for us is, what happens or what has happened when you've lost perspective of your faith? When you, through your life, have turned your eyes, dropped your eyes, whatever you did, but you quit looking at Jesus, and what happened? I wondered if you could take, if you had a piece of paper in front of you and just put a couple bullets words on a piece of paper and go, oh yeah, maybe by year. <laughs> oh, that wasn't a good six months. Um, or whatever happened, and then take a few notes to remind yourself. And then for those of you who are parents, for those of us who are grandparents, yahoo, um, <laughs> we need to share those stories with our kids and our grandkids. We need to share those times when you lost your vision of who Jesus was so that they understand a couple things. They need to know that you're human. They need to know that we all fail and that we all can be restored. I mean, what a gift of hope you can give a little one who's four or five up to ones who are 40. Because really, when you have children, you don't parent till you die, <laughs> or you don't quit parenting till you die. So the, the constant conversations are there. So. I think it's important for us to gather those times when, yeah, they weren't our greatest moments of faith and learn and then teach others, especially those who are close to us uh, from those experiences. Here at Redemption Peoria, what we're trying to do to, to build is the See Jesus School is halfway through about now. Uh, we have gone through uh, our first eight weeks. We got halfway through the second. We'll finish my group I think all the other groups will finish this month, uh, week, uh, the second uh, study, and then the third study, the J-curve, will come up in about five weeks from now. And next fall, that will be available to the entire church. Our goal is to have you be able to step into a class for eight weeks. If you can't do the next one, that's okay. You can step in later. We have the surge school, uh, the surge table that... I've talked to some folks in there. They're having a grand time. They're being stretched in ways that they have not been stretched. So it's a great, a great place to go and talk about faith and about how it applies to our culture and those things that, that they see. We have men and women's ministry uh, who have folks who want to disciple 
people in it. So if that's you and you want someone to disciple you, let me know. Elizabeth is sitting up here. She's the, she leads the women. Let John know, Charles know, and we'd be glad to hook you up with somebody. And then, of course, Sunday morning gatherings, they're a blast. I mean, I enjoy them thoroughly. I don't get a chance to talk to everybody, though I'm doing my best to do that. Um, and then we celebrate communion every week, unique to me in my tradition and my background, but that opportunity weekly to come as a community up the aisle and partake of the elements and remember it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing for us. So first, we need to remember who Jesus is and the perspective he provides. Secondly, we need to remember the Holy Spirit's warning. We need to remember the Holy Spirit's warning, and it comes in Hebrews 2, verse 1. The writer says, we must, be the, the, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. The writer in Hebrews uses two examples of this drifting. The first one is the nation of Israel, and the second are the Christians he's writing to. You see, Israel suffered from hardened hearts that led to unbelief and disobedience. In chapters 3 and 4 and other places in Hebrews, you can read about, about that. A whole generation in Israel died in spite of the great works the Lord had done and they had seen in Egypt with the plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, the provision of manna, all those things that God had done for them, they did not believe, and they were disobedient. And because of that, they didn't enter the promised rest or the promised land. 12 through 19 of Hebrews 3 says this, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, we have come to share in Christ if, we in, if indeed we hold on or hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. The second group that the writer of Hebrews points out or points to is the, uh, is the Hebrew Christians, because the Hebrew Christians suffered from a lack of growth. In Hebrews 5, 11, he says this. He says, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward 
to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying out of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. What's really gripping to me in that passage was, is the statement that the church no longer tried to understand. I think you got to grab a hold of that. The church who the writer's writing to, they had lost the desire to understand the truth of God's word as it was known then. It brings back memories of early struggles in my faith. I mean, when I, I, I still have it, and maybe many of you don't even know what this is, but it was a King James Version Schofield Reference Bible. <laughs> I think put out in 1901. I don't know what it was, but I mean, between the King James and the notes and things, it just wasn't a very, I had it in my locker when I was in the Coast Guard, and I'd pull it out every once in a while and go, eh, I'm not getting it, <laughs> and put it back. And it stayed there for months at times, much to my loss. Eugene Peterson, here's another book for you all. It's called On Living Well, but Peterson's says this about maturity and immaturity. Immaturity, he says, is the stage between innocence and experience. When we think that by changing what we have or who we are with or where we are, we can arrange contentment. Maturity is life developed inwardly, knowing that the significant acts are our responses. There is a great deal we can do nothing about, whether other people's emotions and attitudes and economic conditions, but there is one way we can do much, and that is offer up the center of our lives in acts of love and faith, making our beings in relationship with God. Hardened hearts, lack of growth, lack of desiring to understand are serious subjects that deserve our attention. Remember when I was in the Coast Guard, and it's funny, when I share these illustrations, I'm thinking, I'm in Arizona, whatever. <laughs> I spent many years on the oceans either side. I remember we were standing watch one day, Saturday morning, and uh, there was a big competition between power boaters and sailboaters. Power boaters thought sailboaters were idiots, and uh, the sailboaters thought power boaters didn't know anything because they had to have a motor to make the boat go. So early one morning, probably 6, 7 o'clock, this the sailing vessel, whatever, calls our station and says, hey, we're looking for a weather report in the inlet. The inlet's six miles south of where we were. And our weather said, um, weather report said, heavy fog, do not. I mean, this is, you know, any kind of maritime movement needs to cease until the fog lifts. So, you know, just drop anchor, get out of the channel, and wait. So we pass that to the captain of the sailboat. He says, thank you, Coast Guard. We're going to continue. We warned him again, Captain we can't tell you not to go, but we can say, don't go. Thank you very much. We're going. So about an hour and a half later, but the time it took him to get to the inlet, we get this call. Mayday, mayday, mayday. This is the sailing vessel, whatever it was. We are aground in the inlet and taking on water. And this sailboat was 45 feet long. That's not a small boat. So out we go <laughs> to pull this guy off the sand. I mean, he's laying on his side. The water's coming over. He's getting... Uh, just, he's getting the stuff kicked out of him. And so we put a guy on the boat, and we're telling him how we're going to pull his boat off. You can't do that. You don't know what you're doing. It's like, 
Well, dude, I got to tell you, <laughs> you didn't listen the first time, and if we don't get it off this time, you're going to have an insurance claim that's going to be huge. And so we pulled him off, and he humbly said thank you, and he went on his way. But um, again, he didn't listen to the warning. I also have a question for you. Uh, when I went to uh, college after four years in the Coast Guard, one of the first classes I had was on study skills. Thank you, Lord. I didn't know how to do that, but I learned from this teacher. So she gave us an eight by eight and a half by 11, and it went from Sunday to Saturday, started at 5 a.m., ended at midnight in half-hour blocks. And so our assignment that first week in class was to fill in every block in pencil, but you fill them all in from when you're sleeping, from when you're eating, from when you're not doing anything, but wanted it filled in. So we, we brought it back. We talked about need, needing to study four hours a night, four nights a week, at least four hours on Saturday, and we began to plug those things in. Of course, how about your time of devotions? Where does that fit? And I was going to get Stephen to put one up there, but I thought, let me just ask you the question. As you look on your calendar, on your iPhone, as you, wherever you keep your schedule, what, what would your schedule tell me about the time you're spending with the Lord? I don't know. You get 15 minutes a day? I, I, I don't know. An hour every other day? I don't know. But my concern is that that phone becomes more important than anything. I mean, it, oh, first thing in the morning, let me check it. It's like, why? Because I don't know, because we're crazy. But, <laughs> but it becomes more important than this, than a half hour or so of time in the word, of reading, of praying. It becomes more important, many things do, than our time with Jesus. So, I, you know, that, that's a question for all of us, I think, to look. Um, and what am I, what are you doing to strengthen your faith, your belief, your growth in the knowledge and, the, and of the love of the Lord regularly? And I know I always talk about reading. Yeah, reading. And I, some of you like, what do you, books uh, in the Kindle? <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> but a good paper book is the way to go. <laughs> When I was teaching, uh, we saw studies of people, you know, reading textbooks online and how if, if they got 20% of the material, that was lucky. But for those who had the textbook in their hand that weighed 40 pounds, <laughs> all of a sudden it became more important because I paid for that book and it wasn't eight bucks, it was 40 bucks. Or I'm going to rent it for 70 bucks. I don't know, but there's something to be said. Please read. <laughs> and if you can have a real book, please. <laughs> I think it's a wonderful thing. Build a library, give it to your kids. But um, so again, what are you reading? What are you spending your time with? Some of you ladies, I think, know this gal. Her name is Felicia Masonheimer. Do you know her? Uh, she has a uh, website called Every Woman a Theologian. You got to check it out. She's got some great stuff. And what I saw on that website the other day was she has a T-shirt that says this, Doctrine Leads to Devotion. I think every professor who teaches Bible should give that to their students. Doctrine leads to devotion. And when you hear the word doctrine, many people go, oh boy, <laughs> really? Like doctrine? Like I have to read about even Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. It's only three verses. But you'll learn a lot about who Jesus is from the Old Testament if you spend a little, a little time there. So we've got to remember who Jesus is and the perspective he provides. Remember what the Holy Spirit 
at the Holy Spirit's warnings, and then we, re, we need to remember community is essential. Let me read Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have the confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open to us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I have to say that I've never classified myself as a nerd. I don't think anybody I know would ever call me a nerd, <laughs> please. <laughs> but in the light of today's sermon, being called a nerd about our faith might not be so bad. Let me share with you the definitions of that word. A nerd is a person who is extremely enthusiastic and knowledgeable about a particular subject, one of the specialists or one with a specialist or niche interest. The verb means to engage in or discuss obsessively or with great attention to detail. So here is a nerd thing, and I was going to bring it with me, but I didn't. Has anybody really ever had a concordance? I mean, a concordance. They weigh about eight pounds, you know, big things. Okay, see, so everybody over 60 is going like this. <laughs> The rest is not. There's not that many heads moving. But I had Strong's. I had a couple different ones. Young's got rid of them. And then about six years ago, I was doing something. I'm like, I just I don't have it. So I went and bought a used concordance. It's about this tall, about that thick. Uh, what else can I tell you about it? It's heavy. Okay? It's hard, thick, heavy, it's, but it's a wonderful tool. Because you can go look on the Internet. Every time I look up concordance on the Internet, it's like, Here's a concordance, but you got to pay for it. You got to do the free, but it never sorts like I can open the open the concordance and go. I want to look up the words. Here's what I did. I did this. I looked up the words. Let us. Okay, you can go. Let us, and I can count how many times that appears in Hebrews. It was lovely. It was 17. Right, went down the line. Then I thought, let me look up the word us. There's 34 of those. And you just, again, count them. Pretty simple, you know, one, two, three, four. It gets a little, you got to have bifocals for those of us who are older. But, and then the word we appears 67 times. So that's 117 plurals, generally speaking. There's more, of course. And I'm like, Christian community is essential to life. You cannot run and maintain the race God has called you to alone. It cannot happen, and it will not happen, uh, because what's wrong with being alone? Perhaps injury in faith, uh, perhaps loneliness, um, disoriented discomfort, um, deconstruction. I mean, I've been reading a lot about that and talking to people whose faith has come apart at the seams for many reasons, but we cannot run or live the Christian life without each other. We cannot. And if we try, yeah, I'm going to probably guarantee you failure. Uh, I have done that early in my Christian life, and it did not go well. 
There are many scars and wounds from that. Um, I want to share with you, a, uh, I put my notes, let me share with you something from my man, Eugene Peterson. <laughs> this is my last quote from Peterson, I promise. <laughs> but the guy is good, but okay. <laughs> so Eugene says this, and I think it's humorous. He says, nothing someone once averved, observed, excuse me, is quite so temporary as a bath. There you go. Just as the cleanliness of our bodies needs repeated and frequent attention, so does the vitality of our faith. Left to themselves, hands become dirty, signposts become dull, and our faith loses its luster. One of the major tasks of a community of faith is to prevent Christianity from becoming a dull habit. Each weekly act of worship can become a fresh coming to God, prompting a new readiness to listen to his word, inviting us each into, get this, audacious, I love that word, an unprecedented venture in faith and obedience. Christian faith should not be a predictable routine, but rather a passionate response to our Lord in the spirit who provides gifts for new acts of love, creative decisions and forgiveness, and stirring innovations of hope. Here is the truth. We cannot live on the leftovers from last week's Lord's Supper or on the interest from last year's deposit of faith. Each time we truly worship, we are asking our Lord to take the materials of our lives and reform them into new discipleship. Our worship is an act of expectation that prevents our faith from petrifying into self-righteousness or our praise from becoming arthritic from disuse. Got to give them some, what do you, I don't know. Got to give them some points. Oh, click, whatever, snap your fingers, whatever you do, I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, here at Redemption Peoria, it's our desire to be a place to rest and heal, for people to receive love, a place to connect and grow, a place to share love and Lastly, a place to love and sacrifice, a place to give love. You're going to see this funnel here in a moment that, and that we designed a while ago. And uh, many come to Redemption Peoria and uh, just to get a place to be quiet, to heal, to just step away from some hurts in church. We've all been there. And, um, and so many people come that way, and it's great. That's what we would love, love to happen. But after a time, it's a time to move from maybe some isolation from, from some distance and begin to move into the body of Christ. So we, we do this. We have connect opportunities, which are the fall festival and the spring fling. Chance to come, real low drag, low stress, eat. Uh, hot dogs this past the fall. And I mean, we'll, I don't know what we'll do this spring, but we'll spend time together. The kids will run like maniacs. So you'll have a great evening when you get home. They'll sleep well. Hopefully, um, so that's that. We have Thrive is on our campus as long as, as well as several other organizations that are looking for some, some volunteers, and you can tie into that. And we offer a rhythm class, men's breakfast, women's events, so ways to step into the top of the funnel. We have seasonal groups. We have men and women's Bible studies and discipleship. We have monthly socials. Sunday serving, coffee team, greeting, children's. In fact, I watched the new children's team walking around outside at 7.30 this morning getting briefed about what their next four months are going to be like. And then we have ongoing communities, RC small groups, 
see Jesus classes, surge tables, and other things to get involved in. So as we step away from Hebrews and we consider those reminders, it's my prayer that as a church we will continue to grow well together as a community and that we will be able to spend time enjoying each other, praying for one another, and walking sometimes through the valley of shadow of death, hard times, but, but we need to be here for each other. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the writer of Hebrews. Thank you, Lord, that you determined that this book would be in the Bible and our scriptures for us to read and learn from. Lord, we pray that we would listen well and that we would come to you regularly in our time. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.